You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Daniel Edward, who was Vice President and Finance of Operations for Mobile Gaming Technologies, which was the first blockchain company in the world to sponsor a major league sports team, Arsenal Football Club from London. After a successful exit, he has since moved on to be the Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Board for Transactive Group which is a global instant banking and payments platform on track to do $2 billion in transactions in just its third year of operations. We talk about what can one learn from the competitors in one space? When is it time to move on from one idea to another? And why leave investment banking to do a startup? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. And don't forget, write a review on iTunes and share amongst your network. Helps us create great content. Now, let us start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. I'm excited to introduce Daniel Edwards, who I've been a friend with for years and years here in Silicon Valley. I've got to see his career grow from when we first met at Bay Angels to can't even tell you how many startups he's been involved in. Daniel, can you give us a little bit of background of your career up to this point? It's been about eight, either as a owner, uh, part of the core team, board member. Yeah, that's it's about eight. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my my background, I was a fifth generation, am a fifth generation Oregonian. Family came over on the Oregon Trail, so I have a little bit of that pioneer spirit in me. I uh, was a first generation a college graduate as well. So I ended up going to Oregon State University. From there, went into finance, investment banking, particularly. I was one of the most active fintech investment bankers in the United States, focusing on doing deals in that space. And that was mostly in the Midwest. And that was interesting. And then from there, ended up starting a company, ended up going on to raise $40 million in venture funding, sold that company to a multi-billion dollar revenue a year company, which was good. Started a new company now. We're on track to do about two billion in payments. It's a fintech company. It's kind of how we measure everything: is how many payments are you doing? So we're going to do hopefully close to two billion or a little over two billion this year. So your whole career is consistent of out of the box thinking. Can you share a couple of stories of times that you just had some amazing results because of not acting conventional? Thought of a story this morning that's uh, not really in the business field, but it's something that kind of shaped my life. 17, I always thought I was going to be a doctor, would always carry around a a medical book with me. I I worked at a hospital. I had grandparents visiting from Washington. I was getting ready to go to work. It was about 6 a.m. And my grandpa says, Hey, you know, come come over here. You know, I, I got something to tell you. And I go, Okay. And he says, There's doers and there's watchers. There's people that will do things in these world. And then there's people that will watch those doers do those things. And he goes, what are you? Are you a watcher or are you a doer? And I go, hmm, I don't know. Cool story, grandpa. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. That's kind of uh, left that conversation there. I'm on my way to work. I'm driving there, listening to some tunes. And I look over the left corner of my eye and I see this guy in this pickup truck kind of looks like he's rocking out to some punk music or something. I realize that He's not. He's actually having a seizure in his truck. I'm sitting there kind of thinking, well, what can I do about it? And then that thought popped in my head or you know, the conversation that I had with my grandpa where it was like, are you a watcher or are you doer? What are you going to do? I got out of the car. I put mine in park 
and kind of ran alongside this car, this truck that was entering the intersection. And I was able to kind of get my hand in past his window that was rolled down a little bit, pull his door open from the inside, and then put my hand on the brake, stop his truck, get him unbuckled and and out of the truck. He was choking on some chew. And I was able to kind of clear his uh, airway there, tilt his head, get him breathing regularly again, and wait with him until the ambulance came. That was a crazy experience. And I got some help from some other people kind of as time went on. Mostly it was just me. And I was thinking, wow, what would have happened like if I didn't do something? Like maybe somebody else would have, right? I waited till the ambulance got there. Ambulance came. He ended up actually going to the hospital that I worked. And some people in ER go, hey, you know, uh, we're hearing these crazy story from this guy downstairs saying that this little kid like ran alongside his truck, pulled him out of his truck and got him out. And I think it's you. Is that you? I was like, oh yeah, he's here. And they go, yeah, that was insane. What were you thinking? What was I going to do? Watch him, you know, hit other cars and, and die or whatever, or like do something about it. And so that's a philosophy that I've always just kind of tried to use my whole is what are you going to do? Are you going to do something? Because if you're not going to do something, somebody sure will. Or are you going to watch somebody else do something? So I've always kind of tried to make it a point to where I proactively go into opportunities. You know, I don't want to be sitting on the sideline. It's, it's cool to be a fan. It's even cooler to be a player. That was one story I had. The more business-related story of kind of outside of the box thinking, Oregon State isn't known for its campus recruiting for investment banking. I really wanted to go into investment banking. And we'll get into this in other questions, I think, uh, the reasons why I wanted to be an investment banker. But there was no opportunity for me to get interviews with investment banking firms. They just didn't come to Oregon State. They didn't even think about Oregon State. I mean, the amount of people that went into investment banking from Oregon State, you could count it on one hand. You know, it's less than five people. I ended up cooking up this little scheme where I got the school to pay for a trip to Seattle with the finance club. And we were able to go visit some firms and talk to people. Most of it was wealth management, things I, I wasn't particularly interested in. I knew that we would have a block of about four hours or so at the end of the day on Friday afternoon. To where I could go and hit up Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, City, Wells Fargo, all these different banks, and see if I could get in to talk to somebody higher up there. And my hope was that if I was talking to somebody higher up, then maybe I could get them to recommend me for an internship or something in New York or somewhere else. So I, I ended up going to Goldman Sachs, nothing. Ended up going to City, nothing. You know, all, all the way around getting rejected. Most of the time, I wasn't even getting past the first security. And after 9-11, everything was shut down pretty tight. Ended up last chance, Wells Fargo. I have about 19 kids trailing me, kind of like I'm the mother duck. You know, they're all, they're all just following this kid as he goes around and fails trying to get in all these investment banking firms. I ended up going to the top floor of Wells Fargo, got past the security desk, which was already, you know, win number one. I go up to the secretary there and I say, hey, the president of this region, he has a meeting with me. And she goes, oh, that's really weird. He doesn't have any meetings Friday afternoon usually. What's your name? And she you know, goes, looks at it. She goes, I don't think so. I'm sorry. I go, can you just go check with him? And so she goes and she checks with him. And I think out of curiosity, he took the meeting with me. And so I ended up going and, and having a two hour plus meeting with him while all these other kids kind of waited in the lobby. And then they went downstairs, ended up his daughter had went to Oregon State for a little while. Oregon State was really good at baseball back then. Back to back World Series champions. So we had a lot to talk about. So from there, he ends up throwing my name around multiple places around the country. I was able to get an internship with Wachovia, which Wells Fargo was merging with at the time in Miami, Florida. 
And so from there, that's kind of how I was able to break in and kind of get my first big, you know, internship that would kind of lead towards that track of getting in the investment banking field. But if I wasn't creative, <laughs> I guess is a good word for it, then and thinking outside the box, then you know, wouldn't have happened at all. And how long were you in investment banking and why did you want to leave it to do a startup? I was in investment banking for, I think, close to four years and it was great. I loved it. Not a lot of investment bankers come out and say they loved investment banking. I think only the broken and the weird ones do. (laughs) The reason I liked investment banking is uh, I had a very unique opportunity. When I went to do investment banking, I got two different opportunities. One was to go work in Chicago, Illinois. Or the other was to go work in Los Angeles. And working in Los Angeles would have meant I was working with a very developed team. I would have been an analyst just working on analyst things. And that would have been that. Or the Chicago team was just starting up. And it was going to be me and two managing directors. They told me, if you go into this, you better be willing to work 100-hour weeks. You're going to be nose to the grindstone. It's going to be horrible. And you know me, I go, oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. I actually ended up not going to do the Los Angeles job. I, I went to Chicago instead. And it was incredible. That was where we ended up being really active in the fintech community and the financial system of helping banks, helping fintechs and learning that whole world. The, the real reason I chose Chicago over Los Angeles was that I knew that it was going to be a lot of work, but it was going to be a lot of hands-on experience. And I knew that if I went to Chicago, I would be in the meetings with the managing directors. I would be in the boardroom with, with the, all the decision makers. And it was the quickest way for me to learn the most amount of knowledge possible. And I knew if I went to Los Angeles, I'd just be another cog in the wheel doing Excel models and doing PowerPoints. I had to do all that stuff in Chicago, but I also got the upside of going into these board meetings and these C-suite interactions where all the work that I did, we actually talked about. And I think for me, that's what was really interesting. There's one story that I can think about from that that wouldn't have happened most or almost any other investment banking analyst. And that was that I put together a whole report and a whole analysis for a bank in Champaign-Urbana, which is the University of Illinois. That bank was very targeted towards college-related students, professors, people that work there. One of the things that they were exploring was how do we interact with those people more? And this was a very brick and mortar bank, been doing a lot of uh, innovative things. I basically came to them saying, you need to start an app. You need to like, get an app out there to where college students can upload checks. So college students can go and check their balances. You know, They can request assistance. People don't go to branches and they won't go to branches. And especially this new generation, you know, they want to check things from their dorm room. I was sitting in that boardroom and these men that are much more older and experienced than me are basically just saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Two things I was able to learn. You know, I, was, I was able to learn all that knowledge that they had. You know, I love reading books. I love learning from people and their experiences. There's no better way to learn than previous experiences. A fool learns through experiences, but a wise man learns from other people's experiences. And I love that. I listened to these guys and, and they just didn't clearly get it. I was able to learn from them and kind of get their knowledge on the past. But I was also able to see that just because you're an old, educated board member and have all this experience doesn't mean you have all the answers. I was able to say to myself, like, wow, you're actually thinking of something that is good here. And you're the least experienced person in this room. I think that was kind of a light bulb moment for me to where it was like, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. 
you don't have to be the most experienced person in the room. You just have to have the best idea in the room. And I think that was where I was kind of like, anybody can do anything. Anybody can be an entrepreneur. Anybody can create something. Stepping out of that comfort zone and not saying, oh, I have to go through three years of investment banking and then an MBA and then get out of an MBA and go back into investment banking and then start another career before I can talk or think or do anything. You know, anybody can do anything. And so that was, that was kind of a light bulb moment for me. I guess the, the other thing that I was kind of obsessed with a lot was saving money. I was all about how do I save enough to start my own venture? And, and I didn't know what that was exactly, right? I didn't know if it was going to be a software company. I didn't know if it was you know, going to be some other kind of venture, but I, I really wanted to save enough money to where I was able to have that opportunity. A couple guys that I had followed and, and read their stories about how they had done it, you know, Mark Cuban, Elon Musk, they're very famous for you know, Mark Cuban. He lived in a room or in a house with many different other guys, right? And they saved all their money and they were always like out there uh, pitching new ideas and trying to build things. And he wasn't living a glorious life. He was, you know, sleeping on a couch, but he was saving, he was trying, he was innovating, he was, he was trying to build things and launching, you know, his, his streaming network from that. Elon Musk, same thing, you know, him and his brother back in the day, they would take turns sleeping and coding. So, you know, one of them would code during the day, sleep and do all that. And while the other one was sleeping and then they'd switch and the other one would code. They were very frugal. And that was something that stuck in my mind. I grew up in a kind of a lower income family to where when we would go to vacations, you know, to see my grandparents, we didn't have enough money to stay in a hotel. So we would sleep in the car along the way, just about break even or a little below break even. And those were things that stuck in my mind quite a bit. And so I knew that if I wanted opportunities, if I wanted things my parents didn't have and, and the ability to go out and create, I had to save all that money. Very frugal and very conscious on I was making a lot of money, but I was saving almost everything. The reputation and skill thing, I think, was very big for me as well, right? You know, investment banking gives you a good reputation. It's a lot of hard work, you know, not even joking. I was working at least 80 hours, you know, sometimes more in investment banking. Mostly it was because I had put myself in that situation with those two managing directors and just myself. It was more challenging than maybe others would have in investment banking, definitely more challenging than it is now. But uh, this, the skills and the reputation that I got from that really helped me in other points of my life. So when you're transitioning out of investment banking to the startup world, I mean, you just mentioned the importance of saving money and having some dry gunpowder. When you switched over, I mean, you went from this very nice salary to close to nothing. How were compensations decided amongst you and your co-founders or general the salaries at that first startup you did and, and talk about that. Eye-opening experience for me, just not having that income, I had actually saved that money and then was able to invest that money in the first startup. A lot of my life savings or almost all of it, I kind of pushed all the chips into the middle of the table and said, I'm willing to bet on myself. That's what ended up happening there. A riches to rags story, right? The reverse of rags to riches because I I went from making a lot of money to, to making pretty much nothing. For me, it was almost more like rags to rags. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I wasn't living an investment banker lifestyle while I was an investment banker. So I wasn't accustomed to that life and wasn't needing that life. Didn't have those obligations. I didn't have a car. My apartment was very decent. You know, I wasn't buying Gucci or Prada. I just I wasn't accustomed to those things. It was easy for me not to live a lifestyle that was lesser than I was accustomed to. I had just continued to save my money. I mean, I think a lot of people looked at my life and, and kind of laughed at it. 
When I moved back to San Francisco, I lived in something called a SRO, which is a single residency occupants. Pretty much looked like a decommissioned Hotel 6. It was very humble. And I stayed there for a long time. I actually only recently moved out of that apartment. My mindset was still that of the stories I had heard about Mark Cuban and and Elon Musk and, and others to where it's like, don't focus on right now. Don't live your best life right now. Dedicate your time and dedicate your money and all your focus and effort and, and be obsessed about becoming something that you want to become. And so that's what I had done. I, you know, Mark Cuban talks about basically not having things in his life that would distract him. I was very much along those same kind of line. I didn't have a TV in my apartment, which is kind of crazy. I didn't have a video game system. I, I hadn't had these things that I was kind of accustomed to growing up or wanted or needed or thought I did. By putting myself in those situations, there was nothing to do but work. Is a hell maybe inside its own scape. For me, it, it was actually kind of liberating. You know, it was like I only had one focus, and that focus was to build. I did nothing but build. Fast forward now, I've I've actually got a, a nice place, and I I'm living to you know learning to live a little bit more like a normal human. It was I definitely was very very focused. Wasn't making anything in the startup world. I was more focused on others than I was myself. And I think that a good leader needs to take care of the pack before they take care of themselves. So tell me about that pack. How did you decide who got to join, how to kick them out if they weren't working? <laughs> what was the fire and hiring experience like for your, your startup? Networking was, was the number one key, right? You know, you and I run into each other all over the valley. It's funny how many people Sean knows. He knows everybody. Yeah. I talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, Sean, you know, Sean, <laughs> I know Sean. That's because that's you're such a great networker. And I'd like to think that I'm okay at it and I'm always striving to get better. It's incredible to me how small the world is. And I think that you never know who's going to swing back around in your life at any given point and what you could do with them. And so I think for me, it was just networking like crazy, right? Always going out and meeting people. Even when I was in investment banking, I was joining the boards of companies. I was advising companies. I was trying to do anything I could to just get in front of people. I I know you always kind of used to you know, be like, what are you doing here? When I'd show up to 8Bay Angels or any of the other investor networking events. And it was just me trying to learn and to also provide value if I could. You know, Some of the first companies that I started being a board member or being an advisory board member to, they needed finance help or they needed uh, model building help or they needed help raising money. And those were things that I could provide offering that, you know, that service to be able to learn from them the product side or building and organizing a company, operations, all, all of these things. And so Gary Vaynerchuk, is, he has a book. It's good. I'd recommend it. Give, give, take, right? And it's kind of the philosophy of it. It's all about giving and then eventually asking for something. That was kind of my philosophy going into this is like, you never meet somebody in their first meeting is like, Hey, can you do this for me? Because the answer is going to be no. You know, it's, you want them to see, and this is good for venture capital too. You want them to see a story, right? You don't want them to see a snapshot in time. If they see a snapshot in time of one thing that you've done, they have nothing to really put that against in any other knowings of you. But if you show them a whole story that's more like a movie instead of a picture, they can be like, oh, wow, Daniel was doing this and now he's here. And they're like, wow, okay, he does what he says he does. You know, he can do what he says he does. That was, I think, you know, something that was important to me is just getting out and networking. The biggest thing though is in you have all these opportunities flying at you and, and all these people. And then you need to qualify. So now you got your leads. How do you qualify them? And for me, one of the biggest things I stand by, ancient agricultural, or you can find it in the Bible, it's in 2 Corinthians, 
it talks about being equally yoked. And what that means is back in the day when an oxen would plow a field, there was a yoke that would attach one oxen to the other. And that yoke would then allow those oxen to drive in unison and, and plow the field. But if the yoke wasn't as tight you know, as, as it was on one of the oxen, or it was misaligned or something, the job wasn't done correctly. And uh, for me, in any relationship that I get into, I always think about the equally yoked aspect. For starting a company, that can mean a lot of things, right? Are your work ethics equally yoked? You know, is this person going to work as hard as you? What about age? You know, like, are they the same age as you or in a point in their life to where they have to go home and take care of a family and you just got out of you know, college, right? Because those are two very different things. I can tell you there's no worse feeling in the world than being that person sitting alone in the office, trying to plow the company forward, trying to move the mission forward, and no one else is with you. And that's unequally yoked. I think also fortitude, you know, like what happens when the going gets tough? You know, is this person built like you? You know, if, if you have a hardship and you're running out of money for your startup, are they going to be able to have the iron stomach that you have to be able to get through it, to not pay, take a paycheck? You know, maybe this person's in debt. And if they're in debt and you're not, and they need that paycheck and you don't, you can actually, that's unequally yoked. Go into any relationship, whether it's, you know, uh, romantic or, you know, whether it's uh, a business relationship or even a friendship, and just make sure that you're equally yoked. Because if you're not, somebody's always going to be giving, someone's always going to be taking. And you want that unison partnership to where it's like give and take together in unison. So that's kind of the things I think of, uh, about when, you know, I think about team members and who do I want on my team? You know, I want somebody that's equally yoked. And then other than hiring or finding those team members that are equally yoked, everyone's working together in unison to yeah. solve these problems. What were some of the early struggles that you came across? You probably have stories and I know I have a ton of stories about getting into relationships where you were unequal yoke. That is the number one burden. And people say that all the time, right? Like, why'd your startup fail? Our product didn't hit or, you know, financials weren't there or something. Probably not the case is probably stems back to being unequally yoked with the founding team. You can almost do anything if you're on the same page as someone else. And that's at least what I've learned and experienced. Or you are on the same page to call it quits. Financials are a huge thing, right? It's very interesting to always listen to somebody talk about their company. And how, what do they say first? We've raised you know, $100 million in venture capital money. We have $2 billion in revenue or you know, whatever the number is, right? If they don't talk about their product and they don't talk about their customer experience and what they're doing for the customer, it's probably a red flag. When I go and I'm either investing in something or joining a team, you know, whether it's board member or, or full-time, I want to hear whoever's the visionary of the product talk about it. And if it's all about financials, if it's all like basically Wall Street mumbo jumbo, right? Doing this and we've grown this and we've done that. And they're not talking about their product. They're not talking about who they're servicing. They're not talking about that their customers are just so excited about the product that they can't stop talking about it. It's kind of a red flag. Once you get past that point and you know, the team is equally yoked, you're driven on a mission to make a good product and you have a good product, then I also think that it's been about aesthetics. So I've, I've been in companies to where the product was phenomenal. You know, we had a great software stack or we had a great product, but it was all the back end was really good and really strong. And the front end wasn't. It's like having a sports car engine and a junkyard car body. And if you look at a junkyard car body and you're like, wow, that car looks really rusted. 
you know, seats are all ripped up. Looks, looks horrible. You know, looks homeless person lives in there or something. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, you go and open up the hood and it's got a Ferrari engine. Okay. Well, I never would have guessed that. And there's so many startups that have a junkyard body and a Ferrari engine. And it's because they're really good at building the API. They're really good at building the core software, but they don't know how to wrap it. You know, they don't know how to put it in a box and in a container to where it's like, wow, that's a Ferrari, right? And it's got a Ferrari engine. And so I think for me, you know, one of the biggest struggles that I had is working with technology innovators that didn't understand that. We can get into stories of competitors and, and things that I've had uh, happen to me later on. But you know, that, that's a huge thing is the aesthetics of the product. We're a very visual culture. You know, people are all about aesthetics and, and visual appeal. And if you're not just looking at that and, and, and giving that person the visual appeal that makes them question to say, I want more, I want to know more, then you're not going to get past the first step. So that was really difficult. I think also sales team. Here in Silicon Valley, I think people are really good at building things, right? But they're really bad at selling things. It almost takes a different kind of person to come in and sell things. And a lot of the times, the salesperson isn't equally yoked with the technology person. You know, they're on very different goals, very different personalities, you know, just very different missions. That has been something that's been really difficult for, for me, you know, is like, how do you balance between being an innovator and an entrepreneur, but also selling? And so for me personally, that's meant rolling up my sleeves. You know, I'm not a professional salesperson, but I can tell you in the startup that we have now, I've made almost every sale for us in, at least in the early days. Other ventures I've done, you know, I, I was the person who won the biggest clients who went out and, and met those people. And I did it the same way that I got that internship. You know, I, I would just cold call. This is what I have to offer you. I'd love to, you know, have some of your time. I'll give you this for free. I'll spend some time with you and see if I can help you. Not getting, not being like, oh, I'm the finance guy or I'm the operations person or I'm, you know, whatever, right? Step outside of that box and wear all those hats. You know, it's kind of a joke in Silicon Valley that we always say, oh, well, I'm, I'm wearing many hats. Uh, but not a lot of people actually are. You know, it's very rare to find somebody who's actually making the sales on the product meetings, you know, innovating on the product side, who's spending time with the technology team, who's spending time with finance and the operations team and who knows it all, right? Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank will always say, what's your numbers, right? You know your business. The thing that I find is people don't. They know one aspect of their business, but they don't know how to get out and learn the other aspects. And I don't know if it's whether they think they can't or they just, they don't put the effort in. And what I've, I've been in experiences to where they don't put the effort in, you know, you need to get out of that mind frame, uh, frame of mind and just kind of say, I can do anything, you know, that I put time and effort in. So I think you set up the next question. <laughs> what lessons have you learned from your competitors? I've been beat on that on a personal level. You know, I still have a chip on my shoulder to this day about it. We had a competitor once where they had a, we, this was a backend software company. They were selling a product very similar to ours. That product was a basically like a big data analytics tool. And they were able to hire more salespeople, build a, a nice looking front end, very aesthetic front end, you know, very nice website. The back end technology was junk. It was absolute trash. And anybody that was a technologist looking at that could tell. They were able to hire all the fancy salespeople, hire all the, the great UI, UX you know, designers to make it look good on the front end. When you got to the API calls, that was another story. <laughs> they were able to beat us, you know, and they became like a half a billion dollar company from this. And they went out and they 
bought big trade booths and, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but they were able to blitz the market by basically going out and making that happen and having, you know, a Ferrari body, but with a junkyard car motor, they did the opposite approach, right? And that will come back and bite you at some point. It can get you a half a billion dollars if you don't have the sports car body, have a a nice looking body, but you know, that core back product that you're building and working on should be strong as well. I'm much more visually aware of the products that I'm building. You know, like Steve Jobs was obviously obsessed with everything, right? On a visual aspect. He was right to be, you know, in some aspects. I mean, it's, we are such a visual creature, you know, that if you don't see something and fall in love with it, the chances are, you know, that you, you buy it or you engage with it or you want anything to do with it. It's very low. A story that I learned is just, if you think something is beautiful, like on the back end technology, and you can be in love with it from a software perspective, make sure that somebody who isn't aware of what that is can look at it with minimal knowledge and say, wow, that's really cool. Because I would have guaranteed if we would have spent more time to work on our UI and our UX and the look of the product on the front end, people would have made assumptions just like they did that other company that it was a good product. Because if you look at something and it looks good, you assume it's good. It doesn't have to be. You know, it, can, it can look visually appealing and be a piece of junk. That's a lesson that I learned is just make sure you just appeal to the lowest common denominator. You know, these CEOs, these salespeople, they don't really know the back end. You know, they may know some of the buzzwords. They don't know how to test the API. You know, they don't know how to go in and look at the software in a real stance, you know, and, and make a judgment call on it. They just like see, ooh, wow, pretty visuals. You know, <laughs> like this looks nice, looks, looks expensive. You know, yeah, we'll buy it. Be ideal, right? So I, I obviously would have loved for us to have a better aesthetic appeal to the software. And we didn't. That's okay. You know, we were able to raise the money. The reason that we were able to raise that amount of money was that we were solving a problem for customers that they needed solved. And people build just to build and they don't build to solve a problem. I'm much more excited about the company that I'm working on now than this one that we raised $40 million for because there's a real problem and we're solving something that is incredible. And I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've, I've never had a person beg for our product as they are now. And you know, I've read about it and always thought, oh, that's kind of a fairy tale. You know, back to this other company, we didn't have people banging down the door for the product. It's not necessarily a red flag. Sure, a heck of a lot harder to, to sell the product and to sell the vision. One, if your team is equally yoked, they're going to love that. You know this, Sean. They always talk about the team. What is the founding team look? You know, what, what, are they, what do they consist of? How long have they known each other? You know, what have they done that will make them the people to solve this problem? That's a big question, right? So if you're equally yoked, you're all on the same page, you all are expert, that's key number one, right? Then it's like, okay, well, what is this team going to build? And so if you're building a product and people are knocking down the door to get to that product, or you have good customer testimonial, that's really good. And so if those two things are happening and more and more people are engaging with you and engaging with your product, you're probably going to win at some level. We pivoted a lot. There was always a kind of an intercompany struggle of were we a B2C company or were we a B2B company? And the founders of that company, you know, or the, some of the team members with me that had founded a company previously and they had built a really incredible B2B, you know, business to business software offering. They were able to sell that very successful. Then, you know, they had kind of decided that they wanted to build like a B2C product. And I personally thought that was a mistake. I kind of wanted to rinse and repeat. We've built this B2B product before and sold 
Why can't we just do that again? B2C is very sexy. You never hear about the B2B companies, or you rarely do. You know, if you're in Silicon Valley, you may hear about you know, Fastly or Zoom. Or, you know, Zoom is more B2C, but you never hear about Fastly or these others, right? And that's because they're servicing, they're servicing businesses. But you hear about the B2C companies like Zoom, and everybody wants to be the Zoom. Everybody wants to be the one that you tell them, I work or I founded this company. Everyone's like, oh, wow, I love that product or I use that product. Nobody wants to be the B2B. And B2B is hard, but if you know how to do enterprise sales, you can do very well. We're in a position to where we pivoted from B2C to B2B. And then we kind of had to reimagine our product at that standpoint, which we had built all the backend technology that was great for a B2B business, but we were trying to operate it ourselves, which was a mistake. And when we kind of turned the tables and said, here's a software product, let's give it to people who can actually operate it on a higher level. They have higher marketing budgets. They have whole teams and departments and analytic departments that can go and run this software. Then that's when we started to succeed. Also, it was out of the box thinking. There's a quote that I like that says, it, the canvas constrains your painting, which basically means that you know, if you have a small canvas and you're trying to paint your picture, it can only be so big. I think for us, we had to pull out a bigger canvas and say, there's a bigger picture to be painted here. And, and that's what we did. And that bigger picture was the B2B focus, and then also incorporating cryptocurrency and blockchain. And we had been a profitable off-chain or no-chain you know, company, just kind of a, a normal database solution company. But by incorporating this blockchain technology into our current offering and supplementing it, we kind of created this bigger canvas and this bigger picture that we were painting, which was more appealing to a wider audience. And so we were able to kind of reimagine ourselves from there. And that's what really opened the door. You know, we, we went out and we did something strategic with a, a sports institution you know, in the world that kind of allowed us to kind of be on the tips of tongues of, of everybody in the crypto and blockchain space. Uh, once we got that visual appeal changed you know, to where we were the junkyard car, to where we were then the sports car that everybody wanted to interact with and talk about and partner with, completely changed the game. It was all about perception. In the world of starting a business, you often have this perception that whatever you're building is, is beautiful and it's your darling. There's no such thing as an ugly baby. Well, there's ugly babies, right? It's just not an ugly baby if you're the, the mother or the father. Sometimes you need that outside perspective, you know, see the forest through the trees kind of thing to say, this is an ugly baby. And you know, we had an ugly baby. It wasn't good. You know, we were able to kind of reinvent ourselves and reimagine what the company was. And that took us to the next level because once we changed our visual appeal and our story and the canvas that we were painting on, and everyone could see the picture in this new painting that we had painted, it completely changed the game. And, that, and that's how we were able to raise that 40 million. So you had mentioned a sports team, a sponsorship there. You got to go into more detail <laughs> what that agreement was, the yeah. decision to do it. Basically, what we had done is we had taken a gamble to sponsor a major league sports team. So back in 2016, the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain was very crowded. It was about to get much more crowded, but we were pretty early on and we were able to kind of be out there and be one of the major players in our space within blockchain. But we needed to wave the flag and go back to my old analogy. We needed to create a bigger picture and we needed to pull out the biggest canvas that we could. What we did there is we ended up deciding to sponsor a major league sports team. And we thought about basketball, NBA, we thought about NFL, we thought about golf, we thought about formula, F1 racing. What has the biggest 
worldwide appeal. And also, if you remember, I, I said that this company was dual headquartered in London and in San Francisco. So we had a lot of European, Asian, uh, Europe-focused customers. That's where we were kind of based and trying to attract for, for customers and for, for talent, you know, for people to join our team. For us, it was a no-brainer to do soccer or football over there. We ended up going to the Premier League in London since we were headquartered in London. And we ended up going between two different teams and ended up picking Arsenal Football Club. As you know, Arsenal is a, a huge soccer team. We ended up doing branding around the pitch there, ended up getting really good partnership with Arsenal. We were able to do that as we took a gamble. It wasn't cheap to do that partnership from a time, an effort, you know, just a, a whole overall investment of, of the company. It wasn't easy to do that. Very time consuming. But we provided value to Arsenal and Arsenal definitely provided value to us. And I think that when you can have that two-way value street, like I talked about earlier, it's huge. I think if we were, before we had reimagined ourselves and re-envisioned ourselves, we would have come to Arsenal. They would have said, no way. We were able to re-envision ourselves and come to them in a way where we were interesting to them, right? We provided value to them. We were this early on blockchain company that was able to be forward thinking in what we were doing and to say, we can offer you exposure to this industry. We can make you the first major league sports team in the world to sponsor and work with a blockchain company. And that's what happened. And when we did that, you know, we were on the cover of BBC, we were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you know, we were, it went everywhere. And I think if we weren't a software company and weren't able to regulate the traffic coming to our website, you know, our servers probably would have crashed. We went from zero to hero <laughs> automatically. That was just invaluable for us as a company. I then pretty much spent the next year, year and a half or so traveling around the world, speaking at blockchain crypto conferences and fintech conferences. And I was able to do that because the company was known. I became kind of known by association with that. And I was able to get stage time. I was able to get keynote speaking, also helped with raising the 40 million. And it elevated us all to this certain level. And it was a snowball effect of we made strategic decisions to rebrand ourselves in a way to where people had a different story of us. Because by this time, we'd been around like four or five years. We weren't a new company at all. It was hard to kind of brush off that old perspective of who we were to who we wanted to become. And I think that once we kind of showed that and Arsenal saw that and they got behind that, you know, it was, it was exciting for them and it was for sure exciting for us. I got to go to a bunch of Arsenal games and uh, we had a suite there and it was, it was, it was really fun. So with all this momentum, how did you know it was time to move on to another idea? This equally yoke concept. I just think that the team at a certain point became unequally yoked. There's a great quote from a, an NBA coach where he says that, you know, coaching a team is very easy before it wins a championship. It's all about this team working together, whether it's the Warriors or the Heat, you know, before they won their championships or the Lakers. It's easy to work with a team where everyone's humble and everyone's hungry to win. Then once you start winning, it becomes a totally different story. People think that they're worth more. You know, they go back to Kobe and Shaq. They couldn't work together because Kobe thought he was more valuable than Shaq. Shaq thought he was more valuable than Kobe. You know, they had to go off to their different teams. You know, then you talk about the Warriors, right? It's like Kevin Durant thinks he's more valuable than these other people. And, you know, it's just LeBron James. And you can see it everywhere, right? Every time somebody starts winning, they always think that they're more valuable than the team that got them there. And I'm a big proponent on we. In every address or email or anything where I'm talking about the team or what we're doing, I very ever rarely say, I, I did this, you know, I accomplished this, I did that. 
little hard in a podcast not to say I, but I always say we, you know, we as a team do this. We as a team have done this. And I think that that's really important. And I think that I got into situations to where we were unequally yoked. We didn't have the same goal. I started to lose the drive and the passion for what we were going to accomplish. Because even though we had created this big, beautiful picture on this bigger canvas, we both had different stories of where we wanted to go with it. Uh, The unison drive that we had was coming apart. And I think that that's kind of when you know, when you start to see we're unequally yoked, we're not having the same dreams or the same beliefs or the same vision that we had. We have, we're on two different paths. For me, it was a little bit more easier than maybe the traditional person. You know, just think about the product. Is the product good? Are, are customers liking it? You know, are, are people coming to you and saying, you've built something incredible? And if the team isn't going well, if you know, you're not excited and not passionate about it anymore, and then customers aren't saying this is a good product and they're not knocking down the door to get the product, it's probably time to reevaluate things. Those are all things that come together. You know, another thing that is kind of interesting. I would go to these blockchain conferences and some people knew who I was, some people didn't, but I would go to these booths and hopefully hope that they hadn't seen me speak or anything. And I'd say, oh, hi, I'm new to crypto blockchain. Can you tell me like, I I see that you're trying to build the Uber for blockchain, you know, the, the Uber that's built on blockchain. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? And yeah, they'd give me their 30 second pitch. And then I'd say, what is the blockchain? You know, I just, I don't really know. I'm just trying to learn. And they'd give me an answer and I'm like, wow, they don't know what the blockchain is. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd go around to these different things and I'd find the, the Airbnb built on blockchain, the Zillow built on blockchain, name it, Silicon Valley company built on blockchain. They were all there. You know, they were just, it was LinkedIn built on blockchain. They didn't know what they were talking about. I think when you get into an industry as well, you need to look around your environment and say, are the people that I'm surrounded with leaders and thinkers or are they followers and when anything gets super popular whether it's artificial intelligence whether it's blockchain whether it's any kind of just tech trend or even outside of tech you know whether it's like streetwear <laughs> do these people know what they're talking about and are they leaders are they innovators or are they thinkers or are they just follow on people you know bandwagoners i started to notice that a lot of these people in the crypto space were just bandwagon fans and they weren't actually creating useful or valuable technology it was a money grab. You know, they were just there to get money. I also didn't see crypto or blockchain anytime soon going mainstream. You know, when you go home and you ask your mom or your grandma, like, what is blockchain or what is cryptocurrency or could you ever use this? And they're just confused and scratching their head and they don't know what it is. That's a really bad sign. I mean, it has to be the lowest common denominator and it has to know how to use something. That goes for something even if it isn't as complicated as blockchain. You know, if you're building an app that's a new credit card and people don't know how to sign up for it or they don't know how to use it or they don't know how to interact with you at all and, and how to get it going, it's not going to work. You know, we're really good in Silicon Valley about building overcomplicated technology that doesn't work for anyone except the creators of the technology itself. I had taken a step back and now I'm in the legacy payment space working with technology that works, working with technology that you know people understand and they know how it works. And my thinking there was that it was time to move into something that people understood more and that keep a tab on the blockchain and crypto space and be able to move into that or add that as an additional offering if we needed to in the future. And so right now, you know, the company I'm working on is providing SEPA, which is a payment rails network in, in Europe. And we're providing those transfers of money in and out 
to traditional businesses. It's a business to business software platform that, that provides those payment services. And my thinking is that now that we are a profitable, strong company, if we ever need to and see the time for blockchain or crypto technology coming into play and our customers are asking for that product, I'll build it. But I think it was a mistake. And I felt like I was kind of just like turning my wheels, going nowhere, stuck in the mud, trying to build a product for people that didn't fully understand it, surrounded by people who completely didn't understand it. And we're just selling snake oil. For me, it was a little personal, but a little also of the unevenly yoke, not being able to know that I could fulfill the dreams or visions of what we had with the team that we had. And those are all those people on that team. They're all great individuals. They're all very smart. They're, you know, they can all do great things and have done great things, but put us all in the situation to where we were working towards a mission that wasn't, you know, something that we knew we could all be successful at in the future, or at least we could if we went one way, but then that wasn't going to fulfill some of the other people on the team. There was definitely paths that needed to be gone down. And it was just good for me to personally kind of, you know, go away from that. And then also we got the opportunity of selling the company. So I, it was kind of perfect timing. I personally got lucky. Can you share with us one or two stories of maybe successes or failures and why it was a success or why it was a fail? Some of the problems are, we talked about them a little bit, but it's like, good product, but the customers don't care. If products are good, but the products aren't engaging the customer for the right reason, it doesn't really matter. It's you need to build something that's solving a problem for somebody. You get into this field of dreams scenario. It's like build it and they will come. Newsflash, they never come. If they do, it's a fluke. I think that you need to be in a solution mindset to where you're solving a problem for someone. And I know you hear that all the time, but example of what I'm doing now, we had a problem to where people needed to send money and I needed to, even with my last company, send money across Europe. And I needed something fast, reliable, easy to use and cheap. And I wasn't getting a lot of good solutions for that. And you would think, wow, well, you know, it seems like there would be a lot of solutions out there. Well, it's like as an American who's also spending a good amount of time in London, what happens if I'm in America and I need to set up a new bank account or send money or it's very, very troublesome. We ended up building a product that basically we got a type of banking license, you know, in Europe that allowed us to offer these facilities to businesses like I was solving a problem for a business that I was that needed that solution. We built it slowly, kind of, you know, with our with our own team had been in that same situation as well. And then we were able to build a product and a solution that fit for what we needed. And so we were kind of our own test guinea pigs, which was great. And that built a successful product situations to where we built great products, but no one cared, right? It just, it was a build it and they will come scenario and they never came. And it's very hard to work with somebody and say, I will build you something you will love. And they'll go, okay, well, come back to me when it's built. And then you come back to them and they're like, oh, well, that's not really a problem for us anymore. You know, what you want is you want somebody who's like banging down your door saying, solve this problem for me. I need you to solve this. And you're like, okay, solve it together. Tell me what you need. What do you need me to build? You know, let's, let's go through it all. And then you're, you're working with them and solving that problem in real time. That's hard to do, but if you do that, it's pretty much guaranteed success, you know, and then it's a whole nother story of, can you scale that and, and build that to a real company? That was just hard. I've also been in scenarios where it's been a good product. The environment was too regulated or it was too compliant driven. I advised a company that was in the medical space, you know, with my medical background, I 
was telling them like, great, it's a great product. And what you guys have built here is incredible. But you realize how hard this is to get in here. All these, all these companies have this lockdown. There's lobbyists. There's big supply chains. Like it's very hard to disrupt this industry. We went, for, we went forward and we tried anyways. It was very difficult. You know, it was just a good product. Couldn't get past the hurdle, you know, this like barrier to entry that these companies had built. The one that we kind of talked about with the junkyard car with the, with the sports car body was a good product, poor presentation. You know, you can have a great product, but poor presentation ruins the whole thing. It's all about just getting a great product. Make sure you have the demand from the customers. Make sure that people want your solution. Having an okay product with a bad team and with customers that don't care, it's, it's going nowhere. Make sure your customers are crazy about it. Make sure your team is equally yoked and the culture is good there because you have staying power on that side. And then just make sure that you're building and enhancing on that product that they love. That's kind of what has worked is make sure that you're passionate and building something for the customer and not for yourself. So the company you're at right now, you actually started as an investor in that company, but now <laughs> you're the CEO. Tell us about how that happened. From my perspective, I went there to London for uh, what I thought was going to be about a week and a half. I ended up staying two and a half months, close to three months in a hotel because I got there. It was basically a dumpster fire. We had no revenue, a poor product. We weren't thinking about the customer. It was much worse than I thought it was. I was running another company previously, and I was pretty much a passive investor. And when we had sold that company and moved on, I was the same gentleman that was a seed investor in my last company as a seed investor in this company. And so I joined him as being you know, part of that group, talked about me going to London, checking this out. When we got there, it was very old school culture, meaning I'm the boss, everyone else is the underlings. Is just not very innovative, which is the worst, maybe the last thing you want with a startup. I ended up restructuring the whole company. We got rid of more than half of the people and we started from square one. One thing that I like in Aristotle's first principles, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with, Elon Musk likes it. Others, Peter Thiel has talked about it a lot. It goes over in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, if you want to check it out. It's all about deriving a problem to its core principles. If you're going to like Elon's story is really interesting, right? He wanted to build a rocket for SpaceX. And so he thought, how do I build a rocket? What is the minimal components that go into building a rocket? And he broke it down into that. So he tried to buy a rocket from the old USSR, you know, Russian Federation and didn't work. And so he ended up building his own. And he found out it was actually cheaper, better, more durable, and could launch the rocket more times if he actually built the rocket himself and started from that kind of square one and went back to the basic principles, right? The first principles. Aristotle talks about this too a lot. That's what I did. You know, I'm a big believer in that. Just because somebody has built something doesn't mean it's the way it should be. I went back to the core problem of what are we trying to solve? What are we trying to do? And what do these customers need? We ended up rebuilding our product. We ended up rebuilding and visualizing the way that we were doing it. Pulled out another canvas and started painting a different story. I'm pretty excited where we're at. We went from zero to now we're profitable. We're going to do about $2 billion in payments this year. And the biggest and most important thing is customers love us. We have them pounding down the door to get our product. I'm excited because funny enough, I got into the same situation to where we were kind of a junkyard car with a Ferrari engine again. Right In a couple months here, we're going to launch kind of the Ferrari body or the sports car body to match that Ferrari engine. And so I'm you know, taking things that I've learned in the past of that visual appeal and things such as like just signing up for the accounts 
on the website, tracking it and sending in pack re-engagement emails, all very basic stuff. Not everybody knows this, right? Those are the things that I kind of learned there. It was just very important for me to have a culture and a team that was like equally yoked. People that left the company, they didn't care about that. It was good for both of us. It was good for us and it was good for them. You don't align with the vision of what we're fighting towards and what we're working towards every day, blood, sweat, and tears, then you probably shouldn't be here. The team is more happy than they've ever been. We're all working together more than we ever have. I'm seeing people put in extra hours, put in extra enthusiasm. Basic customer service representatives are coming to me with ideas, right? And saying, I think we could do this better. I think different things that we could elaborate on or grow or expand on. And that's what I wanted, right? I wanted anybody. You know, I don't care if you're the CEO. I don't care if you're the janitor. I want you and me to be talking. And how do we make this company better? And I think before it was very top-down culture. And I like to kind of make it flat to where it's like we're all interacting and working with each other. And that's very much what we're doing now. The power of we, like I was talking about, that has changed everything as well. As a leader, you should be giving credit to other people and you should be taking as little credit as possible. And when anything comes at your way that's bad, you're taking it on and you're solving it. Gary V says, you know, you're kind of like a firefighter. You know, you're drinking from a fire hose as the CEO, you know, you're putting out fires, but then all the problems come to you. It's true. It's like, it's not a very glamorous job at all. Yeah. The title's cool. You actually have the worst job because you know, you get none of the credit almost all the time and you get all the problems. For me, I, I like that. I'm kind of weird that way. It's been a really great story. I'm really excited of the progress that we've made. And I think that where we're going from here, it's really exciting to be a part of something where everyone is on the same page. Everyone is pushing towards the same thing and customers love you and you're having success. I think this is the most fun I've ever had. So what do you think are some of the big breakthroughs in fintech in the coming years? The United States is hard, basically between lobbyists, big banks, and the whole environment of banking in the United States, they've closed off innovation a lot. You'll see this where they try to do open banking or faster payments technology in the United States, and it's not working. And the reason it's not working is you know, the big banks are kind of making sure it's not working. You know, you still have your like Square Cash app, some other things that are kind of interesting. Chime is doing some very cool things, but they're kind of piggybacking off of banking licenses from other people. And so for me personally, I'm excited about playing Europe. Europe has really opened the floodgates to technology and innovation. You know, for us, for example, we're, we have what's called an e-money institution license right now. We are hopefully upgrading to a full banking license here in Europe in the next year. And that's something that I couldn't even imagine us doing in the United States. It's just so rigorous. It's a state-by-state issue. This is very difficult. I'm playing and I'm learning in Europe, and I'm hoping that the environment will change in the United States. But if it doesn't, I've, I've already kind of built a pretty solid foundation in, in playing in the UK and, and the European markets. And Asia is starting to kind of open up a little bit. Canada is, is kind of looking at some technology and regulation that would open up kind of the the fintech universe for companies like mine. But I don't necessarily think blockchain is going to be this big, huge you know, thing that comes in and your grandma's using it and, and all that, unless central banks adopt you know, these currencies and issue them themselves. I think that we can still get better on things that we're doing. I think defragmenting the banks has been something huge in Europe. They're kind of taking all the different services that a bank offers, whether it's lending, whether it's cards, whether it's you know, actual traditional payment rail systems like what we're doing, they're providing those services better, cheaper, and faster than the bank would. And so I think you're going to continue to see 
this bank defragmentation happening. That's the trend that you know we're on and, and that we're exploring. And that I think that the US ever opens up, you'll see that. But I think that decoupling and defragmenting the banks is kind of the thing that you're going to see for the next five, 10 years in fintech. I think it's interesting. Interesting to also see if all those fintechs that come out and defragment the banks get bought up by the banks and <laughs> come right back into them, which has kind of been the case. If you look at something like simple banking in the United States, they got bought by BBVA. Come out of the bank and create a better product, come right back into the bank. It's interesting. And banks historically are bad at creating new products, right? JP Morgan tried to launch a bank for kids and that went nowhere. <laughs> they shut that product down pretty quickly. I, I think these big banks need this push from fintechs like us. The United States is just such a hard environment to work in. And with that, anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah, sure. So my LinkedIn is DWE and just search for that or Daniel Edwards on LinkedIn and uh, should be able to find me. I'm pretty open to taking LinkedIn messages and whether you want to talk to me about you know, collaboration, board advisory seats or, or board roles, I'm, I'm always open to opportunities. I'm kind of under the philosophy of hear what comes to you and then you know, evaluate and analyze from there and then pick what works for you. I'm pretty happy on what I'm doing now and I'm, I'm happy to, to share that with others if you know, they have career experience or other things that they want to learn or just collaboration in general. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And Daniel Edwards, I want to thank you for being on the Silicon Valley podcast. And for our audience out there, please like, write a review on iTunes, share in your network. It helps us, encourages us to create great content like this in the future. So Daniel, once again, yeah. thank you for being on the Silicon Valley podcast. Yeah, Sean, thank you so much. Everybody check out this podcast. Sean is great. He's a super networker. So if you ever want to get a guy in front of you that knows the whole Silicon Valley podcast and, and space in general, Sean's your guy. He's well-connected. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 